You're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'm your host, Isaiah Burridge. Thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. In this episode, I'm going to be playing a follow-up interview I did with my friend Nick Potts, where we will be addressing some of the questions that arose after our podcast about amillennialism and partial preterism. So on this episode, we really dive into why we fear partial preterism does logically lead to hyperpreterism, and we address some of our post-mill brothers' arguments as well. Now keep in mind, we're dealing with the postmillennialism that's very popular, such as Gary DeMar, uh, Doug Wilson. We don't really get into theonomy too much because Nick and I know there's a lot of different views of theonomy. There's the general equity, then there's the reconstruction. So we really leave that off the table. So if you're looking for the theonomy talk, that's not today. <laughs> we just deal with some of the classic arguments we hear from the partial preterist camp or the post-mill partial preterist camp to be more clear. And uh, we, we specifically talk about Gary DeMar, whom I'm actually a really big fan of, but a few of the things he said recently have really bothered me as far as his views of the future resurrection or how he would even define the future resurrection as far as physical bodies and things like that. Now, these are all very difficult questions. They're very difficult topics, but Nick and I wanted to get into some of the specific claims that we have heard personally in our inbox and things of that sort. So, you know, uh, if you guys disagree with us, which I'm sure you will, you know, let's keep it charitable. This wasn't an episode where we just sit and make fun of post-millennialism. No, not, not in the slightest. We just wanted to talk about that in this crazy world of eschatology, one can take a middle-of-the-road view on preterism and futurism and still hold to the classics of amillennialism. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I had a lot of fun with Nick. Okay, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. I'm honored to have my friend Nick Potts back on the show to discuss a follow-up to our last episode regarding preterism and amillennialism. Nick, before we jump into the discussion, I want to say for your time. Uh, really enjoy getting, getting to know you and talk through these issues. And um, I haven't been on Facebook in a number of weeks now, but it appears last time I was on, a number of folks found our material rather helpful. Have you been experiencing the same? Yeah. Um, so like in the amillennialism group that, um, that I'm a moderator and like it was shared, like, I mean, I shared it obviously cause you know, why not? Same. I mean, <laughs> uh, what do they call that? Shameless plug? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I saw several other people share it and a couple people messaged me about it uh, as well. So it was, it was kind of nice. Same. I got into some conversations via friends, of friends posting the thread and you know seeing my name brought up and tagged and been able to talk to some very kind souls about some things they didn't quite understand about our system and you know what like that's literally all that matters to me that's why I do this I have fun talking about the Lord and the Bible and if I can help someone figure out this crazy world of theology a little bit makes me happy I don't know about you but I think that's why we do it is to further the kingdom and educate people on the Bible yeah. And we get corrected every once in a while. <laughs> Very rarely. Yeah. 
All right, man. So, you know, I want to start off by addressing our post-mill brothers and sisters, because that's pretty much what this episode is going to focus on, dealing some of their objections and uh, things they were commenting about. So we want to deal specifically with their thoughts and interpretations. So I imagine Nick will echo my thoughts here, but I understand that within the camps of eschatology, there are varying views about certain passages and concepts. Heck, Nick and I probably don't agree on every last little detail within the amillennial framework. So it always feels like there's always one person saying, hey, you were misrepresenting my view. That's not what I believe. That's not how I look at this. I'm not a preterist or something similar. And Nick and I are not ignorant to nuance and different flavors of postmillennialism. We have that in amillennialism. Heck, premillennialism has it too because the historic premill folks have to always probably be straw manned along with the dispensational premill yeah. folks. Yeah. Although I, I've only met a few um, historic premill that are noticeably different from dispensationalism. Yeah, same. same. Usually it's just a denial of a rapture, but everything else is on the same. Wait, well, yeah, what? I mean, like it's it's gotten even to a point where a lot of people would say, well, historic premillennialism is just post-trib uh, rapture. And I don't think that's true. It's not. Yeah, uh, because, because that's all it, new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but the historic premill, they would not hold to the stark distinction between Israel and the church. Um, exactly. Historic. Somebody wrote a paper and figured out that hardly anyone, if anyone at all, made that distinction. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's um, that would that would be I don't want to say straw man uh, as if there's uh, maliciousness behind it. But sure, you still are misrepresenting the view nonetheless. Sure. But yeah, I mean, postmillennialism, you know. Nine times out of ten, they're a preterist. Well, that's that's kind of what I want to say to our critics. Um, I thank you for interacting with us. Um, getting pushback means that, number one, our podcast is circulating. That's really cool. And if if the pushback is good, I'm going to talk about it and figure it out. And I'll even tell you if, hey, you got me there. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, But I do want to say this to our postmill brothers and sisters who might not be so stoked about always being lumped in with the preteristic theonomist types. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is about postmillennialism, whether you like them or not, the leading figures are preterists. Yeah. Gary DeMar, whom I listen to every week, Kenneth Gentry, Douglas Wilson, uh, J. Marcellius Kick, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Uh, David Chilton was a like the founder of preterism, it feels like, in a lot of these circles. Um, yeah. And I think Nick... I did. I don't know if we talked about it or I read it in your notes. I, I think David Chilton went hyper. Yeah, uh, sh very shortly before he died, uh, he went hyper, and uh, you had guys like Gary Demar and Ken Gentry. Uh, let me. I'm sorry, Doctor uh, Ken Gentry and Doctor mm -hmm. Gary Demar. Uh, let's give them the. Honor they're pr they they're pretty cool about it. I I've noticed. They are. They are. Uh, but. Um, you know, they they uh, took uh, Chilton to task on this. OK, um, the unfortunate thing, um, which I know we'll probably get into is. Yeah. Um, you know, specifically, Dr. DeMar uh, has shifted a little bit. 
I, um, I've, I've got some quotes and things to talk about. And I, I love, I love Gary DeMar. Like I've been listening yeah. to him for a long time. He's not a dumb guy at no, all. No, not, not. Um, I think that's what scares me. Like, I don't, I don't like hearing things. Uh, it's in my notes, but he's questioning John 525. If that is corporate and not, not a big deal resurrection, or if that's something we should look at as the physical resurrection. Like he, he's not sure anymore. And I'm like, that's I, Nick, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to personally, just in forums and stuff that went hyper or close to it and got out of it completely because of the teachings of DeMar yeah. specifically. Yeah. And you know, you, you look at guys like uh, Sam Frost. Uh, yes. You, you've had him I, on your show, right? I, yeah. Sam's a friend. Yeah. So, you know, and he's even saying, like, no, guys, like, don't listen to DeMar, like, on this issue. Yeah. Uh, this is precisely the hyper preterist view. Yeah. Sam is Sam has a really interesting view of um, eschatology in general. I don't agree with every little thing, but yeah. I think he, he's a really fun. He's a he's a fun talk uh, if, if you got the time. Um, but but anyway, finishing my opening statement here, I'm sorry to de- derail things, man. Uh, long story short, to my critics of the post-mill, these guys are post-mill preteristic types. Your leading figures, that's how they talk about things. That's how they justify any kind of um, tribulations being in, in the past and that things are going to get better and better. Now, I, I understand there's nuance within the theonomy debate. This is a very um, – this crowd is has a lot of things in common with one another, the theonomy post-mill kind of thing. So these episodes were never meant to discuss all the views within a view, viewception. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we, we, we understand that it's not monolithic. So, Nick, yeah. would you like to add anything to that about, you know, people being yeah, upset I mean, that preterists aren't all post mills, aren't preterists? Yeah, I mean, like, here's the thing, like, you know, I'm not going to be one of those guys that says, like, well, all mills believe this. I'm not going to be like, well, but I don't believe that. Like, mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to recognize, okay, do the vast majority of Amil uh, guys believe this? It's like, okay, that's what they're talking about. Now, right. if you say something like, uh, Amils believe this, and it's some Amils, but it's some sort of fringe group of Amils, I'll right. make a statement. But it's just, I, I, think you, I think if you hold to the view, you have to recognize a lot of times criticism is general uh or it's it's has to be a little bit more broad brush because if you get into the minute details of every single position death of a thousand nuance exactly (laughs) you know and but then honestly like at you know at that point you'll never actually get anything done right because you have to not only nuance each and every different school but then even within the same school, you're going to have different views. You know, for example, you know, talking about the uh, theonomic reconstruction guys, well, right. you have Doug Wilson, who's different than Greg Bonson, who's right. different than Rush Dooney, who's yes. different than uh, Demar. Gentry. Yeah, Damar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, uh, how, how specific do you want to get down into it? Well, then... Okay, we're gonna get into Demarian theonomic reconstruction <laughs> post millennialism. You're like, what in the world? Like, 
Why? I identify with the Bonson clan, Nick. Yeah, right? <laughs> so it, you just get ridiculous. And then, oh, you know, you, you have to step back and recognize that, yeah, there's going to be a little bit difference. Now, if you want to say, hey, like, your podcast um, <laughs> didn't really deal with um, didn't deal with uh, a um, historicist sure. view of post-millennialism, you're right. Because right. the podcast was titled Amillennialism and Partial Preterism. So, right. yeah, that, that's not... Post, post-mill was a sidebar. It was a sidebar, for sure. Uh, but it's dealing specifically with the preterist mm-hmm. uh, interpretive model. So, yeah, of course we're not going to deal with the historicist uh, view. Now, was it mentioned in passing? A little bit. That one probably least amount. Uh, compared to like the futurist and the modified idealist specifically, uh, so yeah, so that I mean that would be what I would add. I, I'd say uh, the the one comment I I don't want to apologize for it, but the one comment I'll say I I, I should have perhaps made a nuance on was uh, I said sometimes postmillennialism and premillennialism there's not a nickel's worth of difference on how they look at some passages. But even that statement, I was broad brushing because of the idea of literal kingdom fulfillment things. Yeah. Um, and and there's there and but there are people saying, well, I actually am more idealist or I'm more preterist or I'm this and I'm that. And it's like, I don't really care. I just know I see a lot of post mills quoting um, the Isaiah Isaiahic passages about kingdom triumph and stuff as uh, proof positive post millennialism. Yeah. Yeah. No. And we're gonna I, try I to get into that. Um, a little bit later as we roll into things. So uh, again, we are, me and Nick are just bros that are trying to live life and enjoy it, but do some theology. And we try to do it right and not misrepresent. So that's why we want to acknowledge that. Yeah. And um, do you mind if I, uh, because I mentioned modified idealists, uh, do you mind if I like just briefly touch on that again? No. Well, let's, let's, let's talk, let's at least recap of Last episode, we dealt with nearly every preteristic uh, uh, interpretation of the, the big passages within eschatology, and the idea was, must you believe in this uh, preteristic approach to hold amillennialism? And the answer was obviously no, but what is another answer to these passages? And you informed us about modified idealism, not just within Revelation, but within some of these passages that look like they're either done or they're future. So modified idealism is a uh, it's a specific hermeneutic which deals with uh, prophecy and fulfillment. That's really, if you want to put it in the most generic terms, it's a hermeneutical tool or a her- hermeneutical model that deals specifically with prophecy and fulfillment. Um, the modified idealist distinctive is that um, there's a couple things. One, it's um, we believe specifically in a progressive parallelism. Mm -hmm. That is, um, passages um, specifically dealing with prophecy are, they're going to be parallels in that they're going to be like... um, um recapitulations they're they're dealing with the same thing over and over and over and over again right so for example book of revelation you see 
chapter 11, chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20, they all talk about this final battle. Well, is it three or four different final battles, or is it all the same battle at different vantage points? I would say they're all the same battle at different vantage points. The progressive nature of it is instead of um, instead of the parallelism being like a circle, uh, it's more like a spiral, and you're like going okay. inward. Uh, right. So, so I, I think that would be like the visual understanding of it. Um, so, take for example Matthew 24, and that's really where a lot of it comes down to. Sure. Is um, the battleground passage? Yeah. Right. I would say that preterists are wrong, specifically that um, because they take verses 29, 30, and 31. Uh, and they they either hyper spiritualize it and the saying that Jesus came back spiritually to judge Jerusalem uh, or that he came back through, you know, Titus um, and that he utilized and he used Titus to judge Jerusalem and the Jews. Now, right. I don't think that's wrong. I just think that's insufficient. So do I think. Christ was judging Jerusalem. Yes, I do. However, Matthew 24 is not solely completed at AD 70. It's it's a recapitulation throughout the whole interadvental period. So the entire period from when Christ ascends to when Christ returns then is marked as the tribulation. Right. So so if I could put it in a sentence uh, a sentence or two preterism uh in general uh interprets prophetic literature as um it, it assumes a static historical event that fulfills whatever prophecy uh right. either in the future or in the past whereas the modified idealist view uh more looks at eschatological events uh, it's a, it's a logical order, not a right. chronological order. Yeah, and I think that's a distinction you made last time on the show was not every historical event is an eschatological event. You'll yes. you'll know when it's an eschatological event. Yes, there exactly. won't be any debate. <laughs> no, exactly. And and a singular eschatological event is not entirely wrapped up in a singular historical event right we we the seasons just keep going and going and going and that's why right. i think post-millennials uh have a a fair case to make when you look at the history of the church as far as yes i realize yes. things you know are gloomy around us now but look at a faith that started in little bitty jerusalem and has and, and you know and encapsulated the world so I, I can understand that kind of positivity, and I don't. That's why I I actually protest to the idea that amillennialism is inherently pessimistic. I just don't think that's yeah. a fair category always. Yeah, I, I think the paradigm of um, pessimists and optimists. I, I think that's an unfair um, for both. Even I mean, you yeah, know, it's just agreed. Because, we both believe the kingdom of God is going to succeed. We just disagree on the details. Yeah, exactly. You know, because, I mean, even the dispensationalist uh, 
uh, pre-tribulational rapture premillennialists mm-hmm. would be inherently optimistic. They have hope. They have a lot Absolutely. of hope. Absolutely. Yeah. But the question is not uh, what. Well, the question is, excuse me, is where does our optimism lie? Uh, is our right. optimism does it lie in the church mm-hmm. or does it lie in the world? Right. And I know my post mill friends will probably be a little upset about me framing it that way. Yeah. Uh, because I'm what I'm essentially saying. They is would that, say the church is the triumphal though. Like, so our hopes in the church too. So what, how would you, if that was, that's a pushback I'm imagining. So what would you say to that? Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, I agree. Uh, I don't think anyone disagrees that our hope is in a triumphant church. What they would say is that it's uh, the world is submitted and submissive to the church, whereas right. I say no, it is always combative against the church until Christ comes. You know, and a lot of post mills will cite First Corinthians fifteen saying right here until uh, that he will reign until he makes all his footstool. And I say, yes, amen. Amen. But when does that happen? Second coming. Bingo. Not at least that that's, that's what it, 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 what I believe it tota scripture scriptura teaches us when we look at all of the varying um, uh, perspectives of the second coming with the judgment and then the redemption of bodies and the redemption of life, the new creation. And they're not always packed in one passage. You get bits and pieces in different passages. But I think when we put that all together, he will slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, right? And I think that I think that's something that happens at his parousia. Yeah, exactly. Because the same passage in 1 Corinthians is talking about the final resurrection of the body. So mm-hmm. – when when is all of these uh made uh christ's footstool when are all the enemies made his footstool the same time at the resurrection of the body the same time that the body is transformed the same time uh that the new heavens and the new earth start so right it's not before which that seems to be the chronolog the chronology of post-millennialism that that the world becomes submissive to no, that doesn't mean that they're not going to have enemies or whatever. I like sure. I don't think, think postmills would say that. Well, every single person upon the earth is right. They don't claim Golden Gate perfection. You know, exactly. Like, it's not a utopia as much as it's a ideal place to live. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but um, on the other hand, when I look at passages like. Revelation chapter 11, which it, it talks about that the faithful, faithful witnesses are killed um, and that yeah. the whole world uh, rejoices at their death. And then what happens? Then Christ returns immediately. Yeah. Uh, same thing. And what is it? I think it's chapter 16. Uh, then same thing. End of chapter 19. Everyone's killed. I'm glad we got on this topic about some of the post-mill proof texts because we are going to be discussing some of the real fundamental differences in interpretation between an amill and a post-mill, especially talking about the two-age model and the new heavens and new earth. But I'd like to address this idea that um, you know Jeff Durbin loves to say, and I 
And again, I commend his heart because he believes it. And guess what? I believe it too, but not in the same way he proclaims. He says that the New Testament's favorite Bible verse is Psalm 110. He shall reign till he puts his enemies under his feet. And so Jeff will say things like, death is the last enemy. So all the other enemies like secularism, uh, um, you know, rebellion to God's law, those will be put under his feet day by day by day by day by day. And then death will be put to death at the second coming. Yeah. And so and he'll say he'll proclaim that up on Psalm 110. So how I know you were saying that happens at you believe that Psalm 10 is fulfilled in its most prolific sense in the second coming. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up here. I got it up here in my logos, too. So. So, yeah, so I'm going to read the whole psalm. Yeah, uh, it's, which it's is seven verses. It matters. Yeah. Yeah. So it says, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, just pausing there briefly is that this is the verse that's quoted it's quoted i think four or five times it's quoted multiple times i i I don't know how many offhand um Mm -hmm. but uh acts i believe uh yeah a couple times in acts hebrews i think quotes it uh, a couple times um so right here sit at uh my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool Mm-hmm. Uh, right there, and that's what's quoted. But then, let's keep reading, because uh, I think if you keep reading, that that tends to get rid of a lot of false interpretations. Right. Um, uh, it says the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, now, with that said, I, I think Christ does rule in the midst of his enemies right now. I'm not right. disagreeing with that. 100% agree. Here's where it keeps coming out further uh your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power right okay when is this um this is the same phrase that's used often as the day of the lord um it says uh on the day of your power in holy garments uh, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right there, that's also cited in mm-hmm. uh, Hebrews like 7 through 10, uh, like those chapters. Um, and then notice verse 5 also. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. Mm-hmm. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. His wrath. That's, so when is that's, this to take place? That's That was my point. You see the suffering of the judgment among nations. Yes. It seems like a huge event. You're talking about corpses. Now, so what What I, I guess I don't understand about some of our uh, post-mill interpretations is they like things literal – but then they'll say things like, well, the day, his day is like a really long time. It's like the new age, you know, the new, yeah, the new covenant age or things like that. But these Psalms read like it's, well, like the rest of the Bible talks about, the day of the Lord is a swift, you know, judgmental event. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't look like it takes a thousand years to happen. Yeah. And let's, let's play devil's advocate for, uh, just a moment not devil's advocate okay. Let, let's assume that position okay. for just a moment okay sure. let's assume that 
the day of his wrath is a prolonged period. Right. I agree. Um, um, that one that really doesn't sound like a golden age, first of all. And then two, let's let's take a a whole passage that talks about the wrath of God. Second Peter three, uh, which I know we discussed last time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Uh, what one fact that Christ is coming back in judgment? This right. one fact, uh, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years one day. Okay, right there, judgment is you know not just particularly on one day; it could be a thousand years. Okay, fine. The right. Lord is not slow and fulfills promises; some count slowness, but patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Mm-hmm. When the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done within it uh, will be exposed. So what is it that brings a, uh, what is the day of wrath? What is the day of the Lord? It is the destruction of what you see and the creation of what you do not yet see. Um, Thus, it is the new heavens and the new earth that is still yet future. Right. Uh, which is the day of the Lord or the day of wrath. So, uh, you know, we, we had a, a commenter say something of the sort of I'm an ideal. I'm an idealistic post mill. So you and I, Nick, probably read this passage idealistically <laughs> because we believe the Lord is ruling with a scepter. But we don't believe the end. The end of that is, is a earthly utopia. At least Correct. not without Christ. Um, Correct. So, could could someone in theory be idealistically post mill on these kinds of things, especially in the preteristic interpretations, because they're trying to ditch that? It would be very difficult to be. It, it seems inconsistent. It it is uh, on a technical basis. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I also want to be careful and. Remembering that people are not logical systems. Sure. Um, there is that glorious inconsistency. Uh, which, inconsistencies. Yeah, that's right? why Arminian brothers usually aren't open theists. Or our <laughs> preterist brothers aren't hyper-preterists. Amen. Sure. You know, um, you know I, I like what, um, you know, I like what um, Dean Davis, uh, if, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, yes, wrote, I know. Did he wrote you, a book called High King of Heaven. Yes. Um, which is a tome. The thing's like almost 800 pages long. Um, and But he's uh, currently working on a shortened version that's about 300 pages long. <laughs> um, but uh, he's, he's got a blog, uh, right? Uh, he's got a, a blog that he writes as well. And um, he says that partial preterism is simply an inconsistent form of full preterism or hyper preterism, what I would call it. Yeah. Says uh, both of them stand upon the same corrupt foundation, a faulty exegesis of Matthew 24 that fails to discern prophetic blending, uh, that collapses the far into the near and the cosmic into the local. That therefore hyper spiritualizes and misinterprets and misinterprets 
scripture's premier description of the Perugia, and that thereby creates a false hermeneutic and a false emphasis that spread like a cancer to other crucial eschatological texts, including many in the Revelation. In short, if hermeneutical consistency counts for anything, the partial preterist must sooner or later become a full preterist or else turn back altogether. I I think that's really fair, and it also signals something that I think we we're just observing right now in this passage in the Old Testament in Psalm 110. You see that this is the victory of Christ over his enemies, not just in the first century, but yeah. throughout time to come. But then it also future casts, if you will, the day of his wrath, right? Yeah. So like you, you have a lot of time in seven verses. And so I guess my, I guess that was my point was you'll have our post mill friends say things like this. They'll, they'll, they'll almost say exactly what we're saying here. When you get to passages that use the same kind of language, especially Matthew 24, they must shove it back into 70 AD. It cannot be something that wanes through time. Yeah. Yep. So no, I hundred percent agree. And you know, I think again, if you stop at verses one and two, but don't continue reading through the whole psalm, especially mm-hmm. verses five and six, I think you can come to a post mill conclusion uh sure. if you don't read verses five and six. But I think if you do read five and six, I I don't think that you can come to a post millennial interpretation of this. I'm not saying post-millennialism hangs and, uh, like, stands and falls on this. Hangs and falls on Psalm 110, yeah. But I think if you read the whole psalm, you can't come to a post-mill interpretation of this psalm. Right. I would like to move into, um, let's talk about why we fret over some of these interpretations. Because it's not that we hate people being optimistic about, you know— the millennium or you know the end of time it's that nick and i are we have this gift and curse of like really 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 logical thinking and when you start saying things like the age to come is now you start eliminating the need for resurrection and glorification yeah. because all those texts sit within the same text of those texts right you know what i'm saying yeah and you know, and then like let's look at it on a you know a very pastoral level too, uh, right. not not even the theoretical, uh, theological eschatology high tower ivory tower stuff. Like sure. let's look at it at the pew. Thank uh, you for bringing that up. I appreciate that. It's my pleasure. <laughs> no, no, I, this is a podcast for the church, not the ivory yeah. tower. Amen. So. You know, so if. If we say that the age to come and what we find throughout the New Testament that speaks about the age to come and the qualities about the age to come, if we say the age to come is now, then we are glorified now. Right. Judgment's over. Which leaves no room for sanctification. Mm-hmm. None. If if we are to say the age to come is now, there's there's no room to evangelize because evangelism is over. Today is the day of salvation. Yep. If we are in the age to come, there's no purpose to evangelism. 
so yeah, like I mean, like w- this is one of the reasons why it, it becomes such an issue, because if we bring it down to the pew, then to say we are now in the age to come, uh, then there is no evangelism, there is no personal sanctification. There is, I mean, if if I want to stretch it a little far, uh, there's really no purpose to meeting at church on Sunday. Uh, right. Because if you look at Revelation chapter uh, chapters 21 and 22, it says that there is um, that the city, there is no temple in the city for God dwells with his people. Or how about communion? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Don't now, if, if right now, well, if they want to say, well, he comes there must be the second coming. That's really inconsistent with demar has been really beaten on the, the topic lately of. Anytime the New Testament says Christ is coming, it's probably judgment. It's probably 70 AD. And so I'm left going, when's he coming back, Gary? <laughs> well, several people have Is he asked coming that. back at all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, several people have asked, Gary, when is Jesus coming back physically to judge the whole earth? And right. he has not said He'll yes. dodge it. Because I think and that's and that's what I'm what I meant by logical. Uh, earlier. Gary is a fantastic, brilliant thinker in the realm of politics and the church. And not not everything the man says is is uh, wrong. I mean, I, I benefit a lot from him sure. in my Christian journey. Um, but I, my heart has started to sink, especially the last few weeks, uh, because he was, uh, if you listen to it, the Gary DeMar podcast, you can listen to it on Spotify or any podcast catcher kind of app. And he'll say things like, I'm getting a lot of comments and people writing in saying, Gary, why won't you take a stance on the resurrection? And I'm just, I'm still thinking through these things. I'm just thinking it through. And I'm like, that's terrifying. Yeah, because, okay, so I want to step back for just a moment. Am I still thinking through some of these things? Yes. Sure. However, there are things that I'm dead set on. Jesus Amen. is coming back physically to judge and to bring the completion of both our salvation, the consummation of his kingdom in the whole cosmos. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's I mean, the Nicene Creed even mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. I was just about to say the apostles or Nicene Creed uh, would be a perfect, you know, 30, 30 second to 45 second gospel presentation. That'd be perfect. Right. Believe in one yeah. God, Father the Almighty, mm-hmm. maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. Like, and you just work through it. And yeah, I mean, but then light I, of light. I, yeah. Light uh true God from true God, begotten, not made. Um, right. you know, but then you get you get down to the where that he uh that he is coming again to judge the living and the mm-hmm. dead. Wasn't like, it nice of Nicaea to leave out the details like that? Like a lot of people can be included in that creed. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, but but it doesn't say that he is coming again to judge Jerusalem. No, no, that's a good point. And I think most reformed folks who usually make up the large majority of the post mill preterist camp are reformed folks. Yeah, and they at least believe that the Nicene Creed is binding in some form or fashion. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, and um, and 
the other irony about the Nicene Creed is it it uses futuristic uh, that he is coming again. Mm-hmm. But that was written after AD 70. Many, many moons after AD 70. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, now with that said, um, can you say the Nicene Creed is wrong? Sure. It's not scripture, so it is fallible, technically. And and Gary Gary used that in his defense, too, when yes. uh, on that uh, episode. I don't know if you got to listen to it. Um, I, I was, haven't listened to it yet, but I, I have it queued up. It's it's after a couple a couple yeah. sermons, um, and he was just basically saying that creeds and confessions are great, um, and I, I would basically agree with what he's saying. But he's like, but if we believe that they are contrary to scripture, scripture takes precedent, and I believe that one can distinguish between these comings of Christ is what he was essentially saying. Yeah. And again, and in principle, I have to go, okay, Gary, that's fair, but it really freaks me out that you're you're like one tiptoe away from just saying I'm a hyper-preterist because uh, on on one of the most, most recent podcasts about somebody, he was asking, asking or answering listener questions about the uh, two witnesses of Revelation, and his view of the two witnesses wasn't outrageous, by the way, but he started to say, I'm being, I'm a lot more comfortable these days with everything in revelation being done and only pertinent to that that time and i think people like um gentry would at least say 21 and 22 have some relevance to the future yeah even uh, even dr gentry has changed his uh position on the olivet discourse uh right he used to say it was wrapped up in 8070 now he says no this actually is speaking cosmically uh, so this must be speaking at the end of time. Amen, Dr. Gentry. Yeah. Praise the Lord for his, one, his humility to change his mind. So uh, I, I thank 100%. the Lord for that. But two, I would say praise the Lord for a now proper understanding and interpretation of the passage. Amen. Um, and it's 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 teachable, too. Like, it's not it's yeah. not new. It's You and no. I aren't talking about anything that hasn't been believed in history it's just right it's just we live in a more polarizing social media theology kind of world and it seems like you either hear about futurism or preterism and um there's there there is orthodox historical views in between yeah (laughs) so um, modified idealism is the red-headed stepchild (laughs) right you know you know but I i think this leads right into the two age I was just about oh. to say I was about to just do my little intro to the two age model. Oh, Nick, you, you, yeah, you you had shared with me in private that the two age model is something that really helped you move away from the hard you know hardline preteristic approach. Yeah. So while I'm speaking, I'm pulling up my logos on, on some really interesting passages about this age and the age to come, and how if that's affirmed the way that the post mill says it should be, that the old covenant age is simply temple temple sacrifices. But the new covenant took its full, most full orbed fashion after the destruction of the temple, and this is the age to come. You have some really weird stuff you have to explain away, and I just don't. I'm not comfortable. I think it compromises too much theology to do so. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. So you know when you look at Matthew 12:32, for instance, you know he says. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. So this is a passage that they can kind of get away with saying, well, see, you still can't blast me the Holy Spirit. This is this is totally relevant to us now. Sure. When we really harmonize Jesus talking about the age, especially when he uh, talks about the parables of the weeds, when he explains the parable, he says in Matthew chapter 13, 36, he says, uh, left the crowds into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, is he talking about the age to come here? Are they still in the old age? Kind of gets weird. So, so well, I know you have some notes on this too. So I'm going to let you take well, over. I mean, if you if you take a look at um, Matthew 13, it says the angels go out to gather and collect. Well, mm-hmm. where else do you find that? Matthew 25. Yep, it, the nations literally the Son says of Man. The angels, uh, the Son of Man sends the angels out to collect those that are to be called sheep and those that are to be called goats. Goats. And then it says, those who are the sheep go to eternal life, right. and those who are goats go to eternal, eternal punishment. That's right. But you, you quoted uh, Matthew twelve thirty two. Well, let, let's look at Mark 3, uh, 29, which is the same exact thing. Okay. Uh, I'll start with 28 because it's halfway through the sentence. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven uh, the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Okay, now wait a second. Oh, but is guilty oh. of an eternal sin. So wait okay. a second. Jesus just called the age to come eternal in nature. You see, you see the issue here, right? Because and this is just biblical theology. This isn't us criticizing yeah. preterism. This is what we have to do with the text. Like this, the text warrants this. Yeah. So, yeah. So really, you only have two ages here. You have this age, which sins can be forgiven, Mm -hmm. uh, except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not forgiven in this age, nor the age to come. Uh, But this age, but then this age seems to have an end at some given point. We haven't gotten there yet. uh, At some given point. But then the age to come is marked as eternal. Right. And you're like, oh, so then the age to come has no end. And that's just got, that's synoptic harmonization 101. Yeah, it really is. You know, so I, I don't see how you can get around this age and the age to come um, being the exhaustion of all time, including uh the endless time of the eternal state right in luke 20 uh 34 you get the marrying stuff you know marriage is in this age marriage is not in the next age and then if you harmonize that with the angels neither give or given in marriage or they're never given or given in marriage they're like the angels in heaven when all that gets harmonized this this has to be talking about the glorified state this cannot be something i don't believe currently this could be something um symbolizing something about what we do now right like this is yeah this is real physical marriage 
Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. So like, so let me break the, the two age model down into three statements. Uh, sure. Okay, we had a technical difficulty, folks. We are Skyping, and Nick lives in Florida, so he killed some programs, and I grabbed a drink. But anyway, we were talking about how the two-age model, if taken consistently the way the post-mill folks talk about it, is starts creating some really uh, problematic things about glorification, the resurrection. And so Nick has a uh, monologue for us on the two-age model. So, Nick, let's talk about it, this age and the age to come. Yeah, so so uh, like um, I, I get a lot of it from Sam Wal- Dr. Sam Waldron. I, I think he's I love listening. Really, to just kind of nailed it. Uh, I think he's spot on with these. So point one is this age and the age to come taken together exhaust all time, including the endless time of the eternal state. Um, we can look at passages like uh, Matthew. 20 uh or excuse me and it says that um that sins against uh blasphemies against the holy spirit will not be uh forgiven in this age nor in the age to come okay so we see the dichotomy between this age and then the age to come but then in matthew or mark uh 329 it says that will never be forgiven and then it says that it is an eternal sin and you're like wait a second so the age to come is marked by an eternal nature right so that's that's just one example uh you know there's plenty of others that we see throughout scripture when we see this age and the age to come it seems to mark the entirety of time but then the second point fills in a little bit more gaps because someone could look at that and be like, "Eh, I'm not so sure. Well, point two is this age and the age to come are qualitatively different states of human existence and qualitatively different periods in the historical, uh, the history of the world. For example, Jesus uh, says that, um, that um, when he was asked, you know, whose husband would this be, or excuse me, who would be her husband in the age to come? Uh, or in heaven, Jesus says, well, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. No one's right. given into marriage, nor will there be marriage. So wait a second. So in the age to come, there is no marriage. So as we were talking about before, if we're already into the age to come, whoops. Yeah, yeah, I'm I am I in sin or yeah, are you me you and I in sin or, or are we yeah. not really legitimately married or or yeah. is this some kind of weird covenantal talk? Because now I don't believe Damar does this because I, I just want to give him the charitable benefit of the doubt. I hear this from the real proclaimed hyper preterist camp, right? And they'll take passages um in Paul where he talks about don't you know that sure. The temple of God does not belong with idols and, and uh, doesn't belong with the sexually immoral. And they'll say that that's completely covenantal. That's just referring to Israel's apostasy with the uh, uh, pagan gods and things like that. And Paul's just being completely covenantal symbolic here. as And he's not addressing the real physical body of the believer because they can't have that yeah. in the Bible. They can't yeah. have it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, so yeah, they, so it's, they reinterpret the word body a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of people do, sadly. Um, but we're not going to 
get into that. Um, good book. Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy. That's the only, <laughs> the only thing I'll say on that. But <clears throat> the passage comes from uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 uh, verse, starting in verse 27. says, uh, there came to him some Sadducees, uh, those who deny the resurrection. They were they sad, came, you uh, see. Exactly. <laughs> Such a dad joke, but it's true. Thank you. Uh, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man, mu- uh, uh, the man must uh, take the widow and raise up offering uh, offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the, uh, for the seven had her as wife. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age. age. Wait a second. The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age... And to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just saw Jesus define, give us two ages, this age, and they're given into marriage. Then he says, uh, that age... And he calls it the resurrection from the dead. He says that they can neither marry nor are given into marriage. He says that they cannot die anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, wait a second. Sounds like an eternal state. There is no marriage. Why would there be no marriage? Well, what is marriage? We see Paul's statement in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 says that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Well, right. in the eternal state, you don't need any more shadows. Marriage right. is a shadow. It's a type of that which is to come. Revelation chapter 19, there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church is now, uh, where you know you see both the consummation of the kingdom, but also the consummation of the marriage between Christ and the church. And I'm not getting all weird and, you know, sexual here no no it's it's the the established final intimacy between god and his people that's why right uh that's why uh revelation 21 and 22 say that phrase and god will be with them god will be among his people he will be their god and they will be his people that's covenant A a bride adorned for her groom absolutely um this is why we are to wash our wives in the word why because we too are being washed in the word so that we may come to our bridegroom christ the king um you know psalm 45 uh discusses the beauty of the bride and the splendor and majesty of the king and then they're you know they're offspring together but you know we're getting into no theology there but so we see the qualitatively different uh existences yes. uh, between this age and that age or the age to come there is marriage then no marriage there is natural men then there is resurrected men uh a natural condition shine uh and then 
shining as the sun uh, condition. Then you have uh, the righteous and the wicked coexisting. And then you have only the worthy attain. Mm-hmm. Or, as you pointed out in uh, Matthew 13, that you have the wheat and the tares, and then you have only wheat. Right. So, you know. And the harvest several, is the end of the age. Yes. The yeah. end of the age. But, oh, like, if the end of the age is the end of the Old Testament, well, then, right now, upon the earth, you ha- we are living in the new, new heavens and new earth. We are living in a world that is uh, purely resurrected men. We have uh, men that are shining as the sun. We have only wheat upon the earth. We have only those who uh, are worthy to attain the resurrection living upon the earth. Uh, we have uh, no dying or death upon the earth. And we have no marriage upon the earth. Right. That's a problem. Right. Because if that's the case, then I don't, I don't even know how to be sarcastic about that. Uh, like, it's just not like we are not living in this no. state. And, this state and not be equated to the new covenant. It's it's equated to the uh, the finalization of the new covenant. Yes. Right. But not the not the entire length of the new covenant. Right. And And to make an argument from context itself, isn't it interesting that. Those who were questioning the resurrection or those who affirmed it, they were they had reasonable questions about now if that's really going to happen, how are how is the Leverett how's Leverett marriage going to work in the in the in the kingdom to come, right? Like they thought the way we think now about yep. our time and the time to come, our age and the age to come. So it it seems weird to suggest that Jesus wasn't answering them in a literal way, if if, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't see how you can um, come to any other conclusion that this age and the age to come are just completely and qualitatively different. Right. Um, you know, you know, the post mill interpretation would say that the age to come, the age that we're currently now living in, uh, progressively moves toward uh, this no marriage, no dying or death, resurrection did pure wheat they would say we're moving toward it but there's nothing in scripture that says that the age to come uh is a progressive age it's here or it's not exactly which leads to the third point the third and final point uh this age and the age to come are divided by the judgment of the wicked and the resurrection of the writer at Christ's second coming and ends this age and inaugurates the age to come. So the line of demarcation is Christ's cosmic return. Right. 100%. You know, and you can find this, we mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, but you also find that in uh, 1 Thessalonians um, 16, uh, or, well, really kind of the whole passage. Um, but it's interesting though, uh, you know, cause a lot of people, you know, would take a passage like first Thessalonians, you know, and, uh, chapter four, and this is where, you know, the rapture is discussed, <laughs> you know, I, I know that's a complete opposite side of the spectrum. However, yeah. ironically, it deals with the same issue because if they want to take, uh, this text, like first 
uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then say that it's a spiritual coming, right? well, then it's no worse than those who claim that this passage is about a secret rapture. Right. Because if it was a spiritual coming, then then there is no such thing as a loud voice. So those who would say that this is a spiritual coming, which a lot of preterists tend to is that is that is that what they're saying now in in first thessalonians 4 i guess that's what they always said but yeah i I know there's there there's varying views within the hyper movement so i want to want to mention that i i'm not accusing damar or gentry of the they as far as i know would 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 say that that is the second coming at this moment at least gentry would but i know the real hyper types would say things like um well there was a real resurrection and that they came out of the tombs uh, and that's recorded in Matthew's gospel. But then a lot of them will say, no, it's purely a corporate resurrection of Israel as it should be. Yeah, I'm only dealing with uh, specifically those within the uh, partial preterist camp that would say that um, that AD 70 uh, was a spiritual um, judgment over Israel. Sure. And um, Matthew 24 speaks to that and then a lot of them utilize as a um as a um uh cross-reference right and that's just that's bad because first thessalonians 4 is one of our most detailed passages of glorification yeah exactly um so yeah so those who would say that this is about a spiritual resurrection they're no worse than those who say it's about a secret rapture oh my gosh yeah that just that just doesn't make. I mean, I, I I detest it for for Christianity essential reasons, but it also doesn't make any hermeneutical sense to me to do that either. Yeah, uh, it just it just doesn't. The New Testament is all about man's fall and and alienation from God, but what's to come if you will trust Jesus Christ? And if this is it, this is a lousy deal. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <it laughs> truly is, you know, and. You know, and then another passage that discusses the same thing that uh, that the return of Christ, the cosmic return of Christ, um, is a is a line of demarcation between this age and the age to come is Second Peter three. I mm-hmm. mentioned it earlier, mentioned it last time, yeah. but you're looking toward the end of this section, starting in verse eleven, it says since all these things thus. Uh, to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, again, that day of God, the day of judgment, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. Mm -hmm. So, the day of God, the day of judgment, the coming of Christ, the return of Jesus equals the burning of the earth uh, and the dissolving of the heavenly bodies melting away. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness wells. So the same passage that is discussing the return of Christ also is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, the doing away of the current Uh, earth and uh, heavens and it says what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness but he's not 
he's not trying to lay out some sort of eschatological position. He's trying to say, this is what you are moving toward, full holiness and full godliness. Right. We haven't reached that stage. And, and I, I'd argue, and this will be controversial, if you believe that everything you just read in Second Peter is purely a 70 AD imagery, you have no reason to conclude that there's a resurrection or glorification because the book of Revelation uses the exact same details or yeah. exact same wording. There is no hermeneutical justification for you to call one literal and one not literal or vice versa. Absolutely. So, and I, I'm glad you brought up the new heavens and the new earth because this is one of the my biggest concerns with, again, saying something means this in a passage over here where it doesn't seem really controversial – but then realizing that if you you alienate that concept out of the passage, all your hope over here is gone all of a sudden. And and I think New Heavens, New Earth has this problem within preterism. Uh, so I was listening to Jeff Durbin preach uh, recently, and I, I wrote down some quotes in my notes here. And the sermon, I'll link it in the podcast, is called The New Covenant, Heavens and Earth. Again, love Jeff. So here we go. He says, um, in Talmudic tradition, rabbis described how the inner walls of the temple looked like the ways of the sea. So it's not hard to understand that if the temple is being destroyed, then heaven and earth are passing away. God is giving his people a new name. So to justify this, Jeff quotes Isaiah 51. And starting in verse 12, Isaiah 51 says, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. Uh, down to verse 16, he says, The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, <clears throat> you are my people. Jeff goes on to say that this establishes that the old covenant is described in imagery of God laying the foundations of heavens and earth. So when we read about new heavens and new earth in the New Testament, we need to understand it purely as the new covenant. Now, he fails to really distinguish why I have hope and a resurrection in this sermon, and that's what bothers me the most. Yeah. Because I think taken logically, Nick, unless I'm just dense— I think it I think it crushes a really important part of theology. Yeah, I mean I, I think it I think it utterly decimates uh, a future hope. Uh, which is <laughs> ironic because postmillennialists call their eschatology an eschatology of hope uh, <laughs> or an eschatology of victory. Yeah. Uh, so it is terribly ironic, but one of the reasons why I love um discussing the two age model is because I think it um I think it goes against both premillennialism mm -hmm. and postmillennialism. For example, uh if we understand that uh the first point, that is the, uh this age and the age to come exhaust all of time, including all eternity. Uh then on the one hand, um we must say that um, there is no intermediate state in between the ages. Right. This age and the age to come is right. all of time. So there's no third. Right. There, uh, 
that that, that, mil- that millennium doesn't doesn't seem to appear in the passages that describe the return of Christ. It's you know when he when he returns, his enemies are vanquished and we're partying. Like that's it. Exactly. Um, and do you know who agreed with that position? Who? George Eldon Ladd. Really? St- staunch premillennialist. Uh, he was friends with uh, Carl Truman. He was friends with um, you know guys uh, in the early neo-evangelical world because he wanted to establish premillennialism as the eschatological position of this new evangelicalism. And uh, he ended up agreeing that um, that the millennium must be during this age. Yeah, that's this present age to which all millennials are like, yeah, well, here we agree. Well, welcome home. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, so we we would just deny that there's an intermediate state between these two ages. But then George Eldon Ladd ended up agreeing with it uh and this is in his um new testament theology page 630 if anybody wants to take a look at that Mm -hmm. um yeah he ends up agreeing that the millennium is part of this present age and i'm like yes sir it is i have read uh specifically from sam storms and folks like that that george eldon ladd made more amillennialists than premillennialists i i 100 agree um (laughs) i remember reading uh, reading his works, and I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Wait, you just changed. You just changed your hermeneutic at chapter 20 of Revelation. Very different than what you had for 19 chapters. Right. Why? Right. Um, it doesn't make any sense. You just say of, blessed inconsistencies. <laughs> right. You know, and a lot of people will say, well, that shows where his tradition lied right I, I agree you know but like i said like you know the first point is where pre-millennialism mm-hmm. uh falls but the second point is actually where post-millennialism falls because this age is always marked by evil right and the next age is never defined by evil they're qualitatively different and they're and uh be and Add the third point in there that the distinction, uh, the demarcation is right. the return of Christ. It's not a progress toward the age to come. Right. Post mills, their scheme doesn't fit in the way the text narrates it. Like it, it doesn't, they don't find a home anywhere because the age to come leaves no room for progression. So exactly. I, I know they like to say that, well, yeah, we're in the new age and it's progressive, but the Bible doesn't doesn't back that up. Like yep. you, you have to read a lot of time into Jesus's words. I mean, our pre-mill friends do that too when sure. it comes to 1 Corinthians 15, because 1 Corinthians 15 is very obvious that Jesus come, comes back once and for all, and it's yep. over, but yep. they insert a millennium in there. Yep. Yep. They insert um, it like half, like through one clause uh, in, me, in between two clauses of one verse and it's like wow that's awkward right um you know and you know you know i'm very thankful for my dispensationalist brothers you know uh you know during the early 1900s you know with the fundamentalist uh modern modernist controversy it was mostly dispensationalists that were some of the loudest voices 
you know, certainly you had, you know, the Presbyterian um, uh, Covenantalists who right. dis- discuss this, you know, guys like Boss, uh, J. Gresham Machen, B.B. Warfield coming mm-hmm. on the later end of that. But they were fighting their own battles at Princeton and then leaving Princeton and starting Westminster. But you had a lot of these uh, dispensationalists uh, in the Midwest fighting against this. But the same guys who say that there's no gap between uh, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 find that there's a gap between 1 Thessalonians 14 uh, or uh, 4-16 and 1 Thessalonians 4-17. It gets yep. really awkward at that yeah, point. Yeah, they, they also gap through Daniel, too. <laughs> yeah, they gap their Daniel, they gap their Ezekiel, they gap their uh, Revelation 20, they gap a lot of stuff. It, it's a theory full of gaps, if you ask me. No, but you're right, though. Our dispensationalist brothers and sisters are usually the ones standing in the trenches against secularism, and I want to give them that wholeheartedly. Um, there's been a lot in the reform community who fell prey to it. Yep. Um, I point to the Gospel Coalition right now, and 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 don't get me wrong, the Gospel Coalition has some good articles, but there's a mix, there's sure. a mixed bag of stuff there. So, um, but I think what bothers me about this new heavens, new earth thing, Nick, is yes, Isaiah 51 does he is speaking to Israel, he is talking about the covenant, but why can't God also be metaphor, uh, you know, be speaking to Isaiah and say, the way I laid the heavens and the earth is the same thing I established Israel. Why can't God be talking about both? I feel like sometimes preterism reduces God to simply just the God of Israel. Yeah, that's uh, ironic because it's the same thing that dispensationalists do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, yeah we're separate. Yeah, it's, it's very ironic, uh, if you ask yeah. me, sure. However, you know, I, I want to point back to dean davis's statement uh earlier um he said that uh specifically concerning matthew 24 but i think it's i think it's true of the wider prophecy fulfillment hermeneutic Mm -hmm. model um that there's a faulty exegesis because there's a uh a blending uh that they collapse the far and the near the cosmic and the local um together that they don't see it as um, something that is drawn out. And that's another reason why I wanted to emphasize that uh, when dealing with eschatology, you should be focusing and putting your priority on eschatological events, not historical events. Right. And if you do that, I think you get rid of both uh, faults on, on each of the ditches on the side of the road of uh, dispensationalism. Uh, as well as preterism, and that mean, that's hype, not just hyper-preterism, but partial preterism, too. Right. Um, so if you focus on the eschatological event, which is a chronological event, yes, I think, excuse me, it's a logical event, not a chronological event. I, I do think there is chronology there, yes, right. but I think there's a... I love my dog. Um, She's sweet. She looks sweet. She is. Chronological, not logical. Logical, not chronological. Yes, yeah, it's, it's eschatological events, which is logical and not chronological. Then I think you'll have a better interpretive paradigm. I know I'm using a lot of big words, and I may sound pretentious. I don't mean it that way, but no, I think you fine. have a 
better interpretive paradigm uh, to understand what scripture is saying and can you can you see it fulfilled in historical events yes there is fulfillments in historical events but when you're talking about fulfillment you're not saying that it is a prophecy is fulfilled in a historical event you're talking about an eschatological event being fulfilled right yeah and i want to be careful how i say this because i think there's really good benefits to understanding the context of the day that scripture was written in but i think this this idealistic way of, of seeing scripture is yes there were local events that fulfilled prophecy but that's not that's not the end of it you know that whole blending of the timeline you know the near and the far but we have to remember that the holy spirit authored this too yes and, and while i biggest thing yeah and, and while i'm not saying that the bible doesn't have historical events it does Yes. But I feel like I have to read my Bible as, as God's word. This is this is my life's map right here, this this book, right? And I don't want to reduce very broad spiritual concepts down to a few bad days in Jerusalem, right? Exactly. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I 100%. I know it was many years, by the way. Someone's going to go, Seven, it took longer than a few days to tear down Jerusalem. I know, I'm just trying to be sure. persnickety. <laughs> right. You know, so, so yeah. So, and while I think, you know, the futurists and the preterist models um, have positives about it, for example, the preterist model fails uh, to recognize the future uh, uh, aspects of Matthew 24. Right. Uh, but the preterist model does actually have a right. Um, yes. A, an accurate understanding of the audience and time indicators. Yes. Uh, and to be clear, I don't know if you and I would disagree on this or not. I still think some of that cosmic language in Matthew is simply cosmic language. I yeah. don't ex- I don't expect the moon and the sun to fall out of the sky at the second coming. No. Um I, I expect some kind of renewal. I don't know, but like I still think he was Jesus was speaking like an old testament prophet right there. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I don't think, you know, when he's talking about, um, you know, smoke and fire raining down, I don't think it's talking about, I don't think he's talking about smog or smoke uh, or, you know, fire raining down the sky, from the sky from like a volcano or something like I that. Or, nuclear war. No, I, I don't yeah. think that's the case. I, I think that's purely just judgment metaphor. Right. I, I totally agree. And that's something my family and I probably disagree with the most because they truly believe it's going to be. And then again, I believe it's a cosmic event, right? Yes. But I think we would really just, dis- they think Jesus is being as literal as me sitting in this chair about that stuff. And I'm just like, no, I just think he's trying to invoke the emotion and the literature mind of the day knew what that was, knew what he was saying. Yeah. And here's the tough part, you know, like a lot of people that would say, you know, as literal as me sitting in this chair. Well, right. I'm saying literal isn't real. Liter- yeah, I get you. Yeah, no, no, no. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to harp on that at the moment. Thank you. But, but the same people would say that a blood moon is a lunar eclipse, not not O positive blood up in the sky. Right. Right. They they do they do real mind logic. They their brain works when it comes yeah. to this stuff. Exactly. So. So if you say the moon turns to blood, okay, is it is it a negative? 
Well, no, no, no. It just means it turns red. Oh, that's spiritualization. That's figurative. Right. We, everybody, you know, something Chris Date said, and I'm not sure if it's original to him, but for now I'm going to say it's original to him because he didn't quote anybody. <laughs> he said both sides of this debate take things figuratively and take things brick and mortar, right? It's yeah. just we disagree on what parts. <laughs> Precisely. So, yeah, and then, you know, I, I think, you know, like I said, I, I think preterism accurately focuses on the audience and time indicators. However, uh, um, I think preterism falls into the same problem uh, that futurists have uh, by focusing uh, that the singular static historical event is the fulfillment of an entire eschatological event, whereas I don't think that's the case. Right. 100%. And I don't know if you've ever heard of, I'm, well, I'm sure you have. You're a moderator in the Amil group. Surely it's come up. Have you heard of the Israel-only cult within hyperpreterism? Uh, yes. To where it's basically, and, and here, here's what's funny. I think they're right in their system, right? Because yes. when you piece it all together that this was just a re restoration of Israel and their resurrection corporately and their Messiah and, and blah, 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 the judgment's over. There's no reason even even remotely look for, for Christ to come back. There's no even be, reason to really remotely think of yourself as a Christian because there's no body of Christ anymore. There's no communion. There's no, it, it's all done. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And um, and I think if partial preterists do not, if they do not keep a check on themselves, that is the logical conclusion. Now, with that said, um, we aren't logical systems. There is a blessed and glorious inconsistency that the that the Lord grants. Uh, right. And I would say that God actually grants inconsistency to protect his elect from going into heresy. Yeah. I, yeah, I think I think that's a fair biblical theology way to look at but it anyway. I would further than say, don't just keep a check on yourself. Abandon preterism. And that, right. that would be my charge. Abandon preterism as a model. Uh, because it, it may sound great when you're arguing against futurists because you do have proper points but the other thing too is futurists have proper good and accurate points against you too and the problem is is your boat both of your failures stem from the same thing the same problem neither of your systems um resolve the issue abandon both of them and come over to modified idealism right yeah, and my Dispy friends are like, come on over to dispensationalism. Oh, thank like, you. No, 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 no. Put the brakes on, put the brakes on. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, finally, I guess my my one thing I want to close with, and I didn't tell you about this. I want your off-the-cuff thoughts. Ooh, I'm scared. Because No, this gets into covenant theology, and this gets into All some right. of my original issues with covenant theology, which I think I've come to a better perspective on. With this new covenant <clears throat> thing being... You know, the new heavens, new earth, and the new covenant is just kind of the synonymous thing that's going to grow and get better and better. Then what do we make of Matthew 5, 17? And here's what I mean, because Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, not one jot, not one tittle, till heaven and earth pass away. Uh, so if, if, okay. he's talk, 
if he's talking about the old covenant, then why would I even bother obeying the moral law? Because every jot and tittle's gone, right? Yep. But then I know my side has problems too because, well, wait a minute. We're saying heaven and earth is not passed away. So are we under Levitical law? Or is Jesus may or do we reinterpret the word law there? I mean, it's a difficult passage for everyone around to nuance correctly. Sure. Uh, I I would say that this is not speaking of the ceremonial uh, or judicial laws. Right. Historic reformed theology has a strong emphasis on the tripartite division of the law. Right. This is one of the reasons why I'm not a theonomist, uh, because yeah. I believe in a strong distinction between the three divisions of the law, whereas they would uh, deny um, between the moral and the judicial now or a civil. Right. With that said, would they openly deny as in like verbally? I don't think they will. However, I do genuinely believe, and this has always been my experience of there's any theonomist reconstructionist listening and say, mm -hmm. I defend it. And I, you know, I will not be put in that corner. Okay, great. Praise the Lord for you. Right. Um, We're broad brushing. Exactly. But every theonomist seems to uh, have walls break down between the judicial or the civil uh, and the moral aspects of the law to where they utilize Matthew 517 to say that, even the judicial and civil aspects of the law uh, are Still applicable here. for today. Right. And um, I was just talking to somebody a few weeks ago. I think, I don't remember if it was before or after our last recording, but I, I even asked dead, like dead seriously, as well as straightforwardly. I said, um, if this is a case, uh, are the ceremonial laws for today right and he said yes so why did christ come like i mean it just i i think this is why we're we're federalist baptists there's so much conflation of shadow and fulfillment and and not recognizing the fulfillments and not recognizing the types what was physical what was spiritual you know the abrahamic covenant stuff and pedo baptism there's a lot of things that I just disagree with the way they carried into the New Testament, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree. I'm in the same boat. And, um, you know, which is why I thought New Covenant theology might be for me, but the, some of them do some really bad stuff too. <laughs> yeah. I, I would, I would say that, um, well, because New Covenant theology denies the tripartite distinction. That's, and that's why I was interested because. I functionally live a tripartite distinction, right? Like I'm a Christian, yeah. okay? Yeah. But when you start analyzing stuff, you do run into to a few stumbling blocks because sure. Because if I'm reading every jot and tittle as the whole law, I think I have to make an assumption Jesus is only talking about God's natural moral law. Yeah. And and he might be Right. And that's pretty much what I would say now, because I think that makes the most sense with the way Paul utilizes the law in his you know, letters. You know, do not muzzle the ox while treads the grain. He takes, you know, like general equity principles and applies it to now. And that's that's basically the kind of theonomy that Doug Wilson advocates for. At least that's what he says on this video I watched. And yeah. he's, he he wants to distinguish himself from pure reconstructionism. 
But yeah. when you listen to DeMar, he he was like best friends with Gary North, who descends from the Rush Dooney. And I think DeMar's a little more reconstructionist. Therefore, he really pushes all that stuff in the past. I know I'm talking in circles here. Yeah. My point is, it all has to do with what's your view of the law. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And so, okay. So then we have to ask the question, what did Jesus mean by uh, the law and the prophets? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then who should we let answer that question? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> all right. Perfect. So. Um, what verse comes after verse 17? Usually verse 18, but I might have to ask Aquinas first. Mm, 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 <laughs> nope, we're not having that discussion today. Um, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it, uh, until all is accomplished. Okay, so then what does mm-hmm. all is accomplished mean? There's a side discussion there we won't go there today but if somebody 70 ad obviously right uh you know if somebody thinks that's the hinge point then we can have that discussion down the line therefore whoever relaxes one of uh these commandments and teaches uh others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does uh them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Sidebar, Jesus, in a backhanded way, says that the scribes and Pharisees are righteous. Right. He just says, I've always, you're righteous. I've, always, I've wondered they, that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but he says your righteousness exceeds uh, that you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven, which also means that the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness is not enough is, to inherit the kingdom Right. Or is he speaking polemically to where, you know, you think they're righteous unless it exceeds them? Like, you know, is he being polemic or do you think he's saying they're actually righteous? I think he is saying that they are righteous in an outward way. Okay. Um, But then you look at uh, verses 21 through 26. What's he saying? Um, He says, basically, if you... Um, are angry. Um, uh, he's condemning, you know, against anger. Right. Verses 27 through uh, 30, he's condemning against lust. You have heard us said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, wait a second. That sounds familiar. Wait a second. Verse 21 actually says the same thing. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. Verse 31 and 32. Whoever divorces his wife, okay, verse 33 uh, through uh, 37, you shall not swear falsely, uh, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Mm -hmm. 38 through 42, you have heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, uh, do not not resist the one uh, who is evil, but... If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also, which you find in Isaiah 50 and Lamentations 3. Uh, you find um, and all of these, and then, then love your enemies, uh, Leviticus 19. Mm-hmm. So all of these sections, he quotes from the law. 
which part of the law is he quoting? Yeah, he's he, he's highlighting God's standard of living. Yeah. And which we would call moral these, law. Yeah. Exactly. None of these sections are civil law, and none of these sections are ceremonial law. So how do we answer Jesus' uh, how do we answer the question, what law is Jesus talking about? Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Right. And then Jesus goes on to cite the moral law. Right. While simultaneously not citing any of the other two sections. I think we have our answer. Sure. Yep. I that's and that, and and commentators through the ages have seen this as like a kingdom ethic. You know, this is, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I I disagree with some of the Baptist interpretations that this is Jesus' new law. Like, no, I don't think it's new. No. I I generally agree with the standard reformed of he's just really explicating the moral law. Yes. Yeah, and I think so, too. It always was binding physically, but he was really trying to bind it to your heart. Yeah, which, which all he's doing at that point is he took all the other commandments and added the uh, the tenth commandment, uh, which is right. "you shall not covet." So, you know what are? In... Did he mention Sabbath? <laughs> We're not having that discussion <laughs> okay. today, Isaac. <laughs> At this, I I I stir the pot, but yeah. Um... Is that a pun on my last name? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I didn't. I didn't think about it. That's good. I love it. I was scared I was pronouncing it wrong. I was like, I wonder if it's Pots. No, nope, uh, it's Pots. <laughs> no, a lot of people confuse that. Yeah. Well, but yeah, it's just, you know. But it, anyway, the, our, your point being that you believe Jesus is pretty explicit on what he's talking about. Yeah. Therefore, the whole entrapment of what part of the law maybe is defendable and explainable through Scripture. And once again— we were relying on that scripture through the remaining verses of the same chapter. Right. And, and, but, but that's the Holy spirit making it relevant to us too. Like that's, that's why, again, I, I I believe context matters and understanding things about Jewish culture totally matters, but there is something inherently relevant to me still. And I, I don't know how to always explain that. It's just part of being a Christian. Like how many times can you read a passage that is historically relevant, but you can preach on it in 2022 yeah when i was a little kid i remember the walls of jericho i mean things like that about yes that's a historical event but what's 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 the moral here what's the truth claim you listen to god and do whatever he says even if you think it sounds ridiculous i mean the old testament's filled with that oh sure i mean ezekiel's life (laughs) right aren't you glad we aren't him (laughs) oh i thank the lord that i'm not ezekiel very often i thank the lord i'm not um daniel and have to live in a pa- oh wait a minute i do live in a pagan empire never mind oh <laughs> but it's true but no nick i want to thank you for your explanations your exegesis we're winding down to the end of this um you know guys I, I don't expect you to agree with everything we just said and just to be clear i'm not really on facebook at the moment i have a profile so i'll post all the links but if you want to correspond with me please Look in the description of this episode and just send me a, a private email, and that's how I'll correspond with you. I'm really trying to take a fast and a cleanse from Facebook and things like that. I'm just – well, I won't lie to you. I'm tired of Pride Month, for one. Like, it's just obnoxious, and I'm tired of being mad about it, and, Amen. you know, I just need to pray for them and, and, you know, walk on. But 
Uh, there's a lot of people also calling that out too, which is pretty encouraging. Like you kind of seen some people say, I'm not bowing to it anymore. Yeah. So I'm not trying to change the subject, but that's why. No, no. And I'm, I'm very thankful for the Lord, uh, that I'm, I'm, I pulled back from Facebook a bit. Um, I want to entirely, but I don't know. It's it's got a good grip on me. It, well, it, same here. I have a lot of family that lives in Texas. I have I keep people up to date on my health. I mean, you know, I've had all these transplants and a cancer battle. You know, I people like to know I'm still alive every now and again. Sure. So I I, I use it as a a purely communicational tool. But yeah, I've I'm guilty of being feisty and posting some pretty rough memes and stuff because like I just do. I get I get very aggravated by the culture and being told I can't think a certain way. So I just want to blast it and i'm like you know this isn't always the greatest place to be in your heart yeah so you know it's it's one of those if your eye causes you to sin you know cut it out so i'm trying to cut out and again i'm not trying i'm saying i'm not saying it's inherently wrong to be argumentative or debate on social media but when it's consuming you in a, a large way yeah yeah the man of god must not be divisive right yeah 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 i struggle I with that yeah. Yep. So, but Nick, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, you know, I know we tried to address the real big claims and talk a lot about the two age model and new heavens and new earth. And, you know, we sidebarred on some Gary DeMar podcast and, you know, Gary, if you're listening, this wasn't a hit piece on you. That's not what we designed this episode for. It's just, I listen to Gary DeMar all the time. I, I have his podcast in my feed and actually I think he's incredibly intelligent and right about, yeah, just about everything he talks about, except I disagree with him on his, on how he comes to the details of his eschatology and things like that. And yeah, Nick and I were concerned that it seems like more and more you hear from people that say, man, I listened to Gary DeMar for years and I just realized it clicked. It's all done. It's all done. And they're, you know, they're out there warring with each other saying you're inconsistent. You're not full preterist. You know, if you'll just harmonize Matthew 24, first Thessalonians four, it's over. Yeah. Uh, so, Gary, if you hear this man, like, just write a really compelling article on the resurrection of the dead, and I'll never say your name again. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, I'd leave it alone. Like, okay, he's post-mail, big deal. But, like, give me something to hang on to and stop saying, oh, you know, I'm still thinking about if, if the John 525 is here or now or whatever. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. No, I, you know, I mean, my... I, I would say what would uh, get me to stop stop going after him would be a uh, uh, compelling exegesis of Second Peter three. He's got articles, but you don't think they're compelling? No, no, okay. not not even like. Well, he's post mill, so I disagree. No, like I just I think they're exegetically weak. Um, I, again, I'm not trying to pick, take a shot at sure, him, but I think exegetically they're weak, and I think the um, the heretical, they are heretical. You're outside the faith if you believe in hyperpreterism. I agree. Um, he um, won't, I don't think he, I don't think he's, I think he's too friendly with them. I think so too. Yeah. And I don't think he would say any longer that they are outside the camp of Christ, uh, Christianity and thus outside of Christ. Um, no. And, and he alludes to that in one of those podcasts I mentioned too. Again, these, he does two or three podcasts a week and they're only like 20 minutes long. So it doesn't take long to him to get into the nitty gritty details. Yeah. And, uh, he's, he's further along than I even originally thought on some things. Yeah. But, but if I had last words, last words would be, 
we're dealing with something that may seem very technical, uh, and at mm-hmm. points it is, uh, for sure. Um, but this does affect how we live, how we preach if we're preachers, um, or teach if we're not merely preachers. Um, this affects how we live, how we think, how we think about God, how we think about how God works. Um, so this, this isn't, you know, like, you know, oh, I'm a pan millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. Like that drives me nuts. I'm not going to lie. It really does. Like it's, I think it's it's laziness for the most part. It truly is eschatological laziness. Mm -hmm. Um, but then further you can, now on the one hand, you can say, I don't know where I land on this. That's sure. one thing. That's a fair answer. Yeah. But to say I'm a pan-millennial, then what you're doing is you're taking the word of God and you're trivializing it. Right. Um, and on the day of judgment, like, you will be judged for that. Um, like, yeah. like, you know, sure, you may, you know, still get into heaven, but you might be on the hot side of heaven. Um, right. And well, I mean, parable of the talents, man. Like, I mean, what yeah. did you do with what God gave you to invest? And he gave us the word of God. Yes. And and aside from a very small group of people that, you know, are, are illiterate and things like that, we and even there's answers to that. Sure. We have the word of God at our disposal. We have the Internet. There's yeah. no reason why every Christian can't be a fairly trained basic theologian. Exactly. You know, you don't need to be a professional theologian. Right. And, and, and there's going to be gray areas. Theologian. Right. I I work in IT. I fix computers. Right. That's what I do for a living. I don't sit. I try to stay eat. alive for a living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spend my life at Siteman Cancer Center. <laughs> yeah. Which you're doing great now, right? That's a ministry, though, right there. Like, And, right. like, I, I feel blessed, believe it or not. I feel blessed being completely different from a lot of people because I have a lot of free time to, you know, immerse myself in the word of God. And you know what? I don't even do it as much as I should. Yeah. You know, and I, to be honest, I think we're, we're all guilty of that. Uh, oh, point, sure. For sure. You know, but, you know, I don't have a lot of time, you know, Isaiah, you know, <laughs> you know that. <laughs> this week, yeah, I canceled on the last time because what was it? My I don't remember the reason. I think Megan got off work or something, and I was like, "Oh, we're spending the weekend together." I thought I was doing a pot, and I'm. It was a. It was a. I was choosing my marriage over a, a four hour night with Nick, which I appreciate. <laughs> uh, so, but and then I but, have to ask his wife if he's free. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, like you know, so I I don't get a lot of time. I don't get to read all the time, you know. And you know, if you follow me on Goodreads, you can see what I'm reading, but. A lot of times I'm doing I'm doing it as audiobook because I'm driving to work yeah. uh, or I'm uh, I'm at work focused on a, a certain project so I can put my headphones in and listen. I wish there was more theology books on audiobook. They, you know, I do too, but there are a ton of stuff out there. Uh, there is because all I could really find was James Dolezal's Doctrine of God stuff, which I listened to. And then John Frame's Systematic Theology was on audio. I was able to get that for free, and it's a massive thing. Uh, really, yeah. he's a he's a pretty cool theologian. Yeah, uh, I, but like I couldn't find any. I could. I guess you'll have to link me w- with your setup because I guess I was in the wrong market or something. 
Yes, I'll I'll just say it right now. There's a there's an app called Hoopla. Okay. I was on audiobook.com or something. Um yeah, Hoopla, basically all you need is a library card. Okay. Uh, you don't even need to go into your library. Pretty much every library at this point, you can get a digital library card. And cool. Hoopla uses the digital library card. Um, you can borrow books. I think it's uh, for 21 days. Um, wow. So if you can get through in three weeks, you get up to five books a month. Um, so, yeah, so you, you can get... So at that point, that's 60 books a year. Yeah. You know, well, thank you for that recommendation, not just for me, but listeners too. If you, I, I think audiobooks are the future. Um, and I am not going to lie, I enjoy them. And I know a lot of people like to curl Same. up with a good book, but you know, I don't I, always. And I do too. But yeah. And here's the other thing too. Like, I, like, I'm not great at like listening to a technical book on audiobook, but how many biographies, how many stories, like, you know, I got literally right next to me screw tape letters um, okay and you know i just finished that a uh, week or so ago i think but i listened to it on audiobook it was a radio address initially it was audio <laughs> you know right. a lot of stories that people tell throughout time were were verbal stories oral tradition yeah yeah so why not listen to it uh, i i think that a lot of times helps um you know helps give out what the story actually intended you know like right now i'm listening to the canterbury tales they're a bunch of stories put together (laughs) yeah you know that that brings me to you know something that i respect and admire and some of my older brothers and sisters but like some of some of my reformed heroes right now will like rail against certain aspects of the theology technology world and they'll say things like well now people you know we used to debate in public and now people to debate on YouTube channels, and it's just not the same. Like, I understand their sentiment, but, like, why not thank God for the provision of theology on your computer and your TV, and, and it's very digestible, and, yeah. uh, you know, you, 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 you get what I'm trying to say? Like, Yeah, well, I mean, to that point, well, then, in a public debate, you can't mute the other person. Right. Whereas you can on YouTube. And I've seen plenty where the person should have been muted. Oh, Amen. Uh, you know, so yeah, Tony Ranke has a good book. It's uh, God, Technology, and something fairly recent. My wife's working through it right now, and he gives a theology of technology. Can it be used for harm? Yes. Oh yeah. Very much. Um, so can these, you know, like I mean, so can these, so you know. So I was pointing so, at my so, eyes and hands, listeners. Sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, you know, your your own heart could be used for sin. Right. You know, so. So, yeah. So, you know, technology can be utilized for good. Um, should we be mindful and should we be careful? Of course you should. Right. Uh, but you should be doing that with everything you do, regardless, because you're a Christian. Amen. So. Amen. Yeah. So. Well, Nick, I think that really clears things up. I mean, I'd love to keep doing stuff with you. I know as time permits, we can do different aspects of theology and um, yep. eschatology. I, I always enjoy your thoughts. Um, and if you get some good thoughts and pushback or whatever, make sure to link me to it or something. Yeah. Um, and do. again, uh, check for my email address in the description of this episode to correspond with me if you care. 
But again, don't troll me either. Like, you know, ain't I'm not going to that. Yeah, ain't nobody got time for that. Like, if it's not a meaningful interaction that with kindness and charity, I'm not interested because um, I made a friend out of this uh, that's a post mill and he's a young man that seems like a very smart young man. And uh, we conversed about some things we disagreed with. And that's why I love doing this because I don't have to agree with all my friends. I just I want meaningful interaction and to put to yeah. bed the straw men on both sides. You know, yeah, let's talk yeah, about sure. the issue, not not what somebody said you think about the issue. Yeah. So, well, until next time, everyone. Thank you, Nick Potts. It depends on how you look at it.